Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Natalie Portman. Seriously, there is no Todd and Wes. It's been her the whole time. She's just that good. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Newsnight. Tune in tonight to see Will McAvoy interview Anthony Fauci from home, only on Newsnight. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is the show where we are cobbling it all together <laughs> with glue and popsicle sticks. Like we are just making it work. This is our quarantine. This is the podcast where we like to analyze movies as filmmakers, film lovers, writers, directors, producer, actors, all the things. And we try to use this as a method of, I don't know, analyzing, getting better at uh, what we do and I don't know, enjoying movies to a certain extent. Part two, week two of our quarantine episoding. Hopefully we're a little bit closer back on the rails as this episode will may or may not prove. <laughs> Probably not. What are we doing today? Today, we, uh, I'm so excited about this. Uh, we're going, we're doing devs. So if you haven't seen devs, uh, make sure to pause this episode and go watch uh, season one. Is there going to be a season two? I don't know. But go watch season one of devs. It's on Hulu. If you don't have Hulu, find somebody who does or sign up yourself either way and and make sure to watch that because we're going to have a lot of spoilers going through this and there are a lot. So So many spoilers. Um, Yeah, we're going to talk about a few things and a lot of things at the same time. Um, cinematography, we'll touch on music, I'm sure, uh, as well as story and writing and other such stuff and things and stuff. So a quick synopsis of uh, the series. A computer engineer investigates the secretive development division in her company, which she believes is behind the disappearance of her boyfriend. Written and directed by Alex Garland. Cinematography by Rob Hardy. Featuring Sonoya Mizuno as Lily Chan. Nick Offerman as Forrest. Allison Pill as Katie. Jin Ha as Jamie. Callie Spaney as Lyndon. Uh, Stephen McKinley Henderson as Stuart. And Zach Grenier as K- Kenton. The universe is deterministic. It's godless and neutral and defined only by physical laws. The marble rolls because it was pushed. The man eats because he's hungry. An effect is always the result of a prior cause. The life we lead with all its apparent chaos is actually a life on tram lines. Prescribed, undeviating deterministic. I know it doesn't feel that way, Sergei. We fall into an illusion of free will because the tram lines are invisible. And we feel so certain about our subjective state, our feelings, our opinions, judgments, decisions. You joined my company gained our trust, gained my trust, then stole my code on your James Bond wristwatch. I don't know what you mean. That would appear to be the result of some decisions, wouldn't it? About where you placed your allegiance, about who you would betray. But if we live in a deterministic universe, then those decisions can only have been the result of something prior. Where you were born, how you were brought up, the physical construction of your particular brain. It's the nature-nurture matrix, exactly like the nematode worm in your simulation. It's more complex, more nuanced, but still. At the end of the day, cause and effect. I hope you understand what I'm saying, Sergey. This is forgiveness. This is absolution. You made no decision to betray me. 
you could only have done what you did. So this one came out of kind of nowhere, right? This this whole show yeah. just randomly popped up. How did you take it? Like, what was your what was your response to to this thing? Oh man, I love all this kind of stuff, man. Uh, when you asked me if I had seen it yet, I had never even heard of it. I didn't know you know anything about it at all. So going into it, I had no expectation. I mean, it was Alex Garland, so I was pretty stoked. But I had you know, no idea what it was about. So it was kind of, it was pretty, it was pretty great. You know, we love sci-fi stuff and just science, anything and theory, anything and quantum, I, you know, whatever it is, we love that stuff. So I totally eat it up, but I love how in this, they reference a lot of actual, actual science, actual scientists, famous ones with famous ideas and, and, and concepts. And they actually put them through the through the rigor in a lot of ways, you know, that, and they, they challenge you as a viewer one to find out what all that shit really is. Like, is that real what they're talking about? Like I, cause I imagine a lot of people, I mean, we've heard of it just cause we've kind of looked at it and, and quote unquote studied it, you know, just been intrigued by it. But you know, I think for most people who might watch this, they've never heard any of that stuff before. It, the word deterministic even would be like foreign. Like, what does that mean? Right. And for me, when that scene and specifically, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is going to be a long haul and it's going to be much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. So. I, I, I loved it. And I, I got to say, uh, Nick Offerman, like what the actual F man, that guy, the whole time there was like, first off his hair is crazy. And (laughs) I thought, what is this? Like whoever did his wardrobe and hair uh, is either brilliant or a complete moron. Um, (laughs) He just looked ridiculous the whole time, but that was whatever. It didn't even matter. He, his, his acting, his delivery was just freaking amazing. Like it's really hard to deliver 90% of the lines he did deliver in, in a believable way. This is, I got to say, this is kind of one of the most difficult roles I mean, I've ever really seen for an art, for an actor, in my opinion, I feel like there obviously there's difficult roles, you know, all over the place. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker is a difficult role, you know, like, um, Matthew McConaughey in, in Interstellar was a difficult role. Like any role that is dramatic is difficult. However, this is like, I, I feel like a TV show. And which, because it's so long and you have to develop your character over so much time and you have to stay with a specific, you know, feel for each line is way more, is way harder. And I, I feel like he just crushed it. He made this show for me. I mean, I feel like everybody, you know, did a pretty decent job, but he just owned it the whole time. He, it was, I kept waiting to have him back and on, on camera you know, anytime he wasn't on camera. So I loved it. I loved the concept, which I'm sure we'll get into and the science behind everything and how they, the sets, oh my gosh, were incredible. The way that they feed you information throughout the whole uh, season is really fantastic. And it's, it really makes me feel good as a viewer to be trusted to follow it. You know, like we talk about all the time. Anyway, so I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I, I couldn't wait uh, for the, the final episode. When I finally got to episode seven, I was like, oh, let's go. So what about you? Yeah, no, same. I mean, all the way through just exactly what you're talking about. I mean, probably a lot of people have never heard of the double slit experiment. And so having yeah. that, you know, discussed in a sci-fi show written by my favorite writer is like nothing, nothing could be better than this right now. <laughs> And well explained and used um, to really great effect, I think. But I also, also love, yeah, like you're saying, Nick Offerman, 
fantastic role, fantastic job. And it makes me want to see him in more dramatic roles going forward um, because he was absolutely gripping. Like I could not take my eyes off him. He was uh, just completely consumed with that part. And whenever he was out of control, uh, and that's and that's the thing, like we, like what you were, you were talking about, like the the dialogue is really hard to to make believable for all the characters. And I think a lot of that comes down to the way they paced it. They really took their time. It was really slow and steady. There was no rush. There was a lot of pausing between sentences as the character kind of grappled with what they're trying to say. And there's no emotional outburst, you know, uh, it's all very measured. And so that. I think really helped to keep this scientific and uh, make it rest on the the plot and the story instead of uh, just trying to ramp up the stakes <laughs> through yelling, which even some of my favorite yeah. writers fall into that trap of, I'm just going to have characters yelling at each other and we'll call that emotional stakes. I'm like, eh, okay. Uh, but here the stakes were all in the ideologies and uh, competing uh, forms of worldview. And that just made it so much more exciting. But for me, when it comes to writers, like, I personally feel like I, after, especially after seeing this, I just have the most overlap with Alex Garland, and in the sense that I've I've had a lot of the the ideas and the thoughts that he's had. Whereas I can go to a Christopher Nolan film, and I'm gonna watch Inception or Interstellar, and I'm gonna be like, "Yep, I never had any of those thoughts," and that's what makes it so exciting. Um, but sitting down to watch something from Alex Garland. I'm, I often feel like, yeah, he's treading on stuff that I've thought of. And uh, by some you know, amazing coincidence, he's writing it only a million times better than I ever would have wrote it. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Because like, a lot of these ideas I've certainly had, but I, I never would have wrapped it in the story that he comes up with. Because yeah. it's, it's not hard, hard to have a, a, a really cool thought or a really cool idea whether it's scientific or just, you know, fantasy. Uh, but it is very, very difficult to to make it mean something in the world of an actual story. And that's what he does uh, with absolute brilliance. He makes you care about the characters and he gives those characters real stakes in the world that they're inhabiting. And so you always feel like these are real people that are after something. And that's where the conflict comes from, is these characters competing for their wants. Um, and he does that at such an, an amazing job. And and like you, you were saying, like every episode revealed something more. So it was always an extra question that you were left with that gets answered, you know, in the following episodes. Uh, and yeah, it was just, I loved it. Every step of the way, so, I was hooked. So I have an interesting question. I, I mean, I guess I can. we can get to this when we talk about the writing. Uh, I'll ask it now so that you can address it when we do talk about it. Do you feel like it's, it's easier or harder to write for a show instead of a movie? Because they're very, obviously, they're very different things. So... Uh, yeah, I'll, I, that's a precursor for when we cover the, the writing. I mean, we so. can just go into it because my notes, I didn't have time to really organize them in a sensical way. So this okay, good as time as any. I would say it's easier actually to write for a show. Um, yeah, yeah. I, so I was thinking you just have so much more space to, to operate, whereas the, the the precision that you have to operate in the movie is just, I think, uh, a different animal. And whenever yeah. you, you can really take your time to flesh out a character in a moment and that makes all the difference in the world because this, yeah, this would have worked as a movie. You would have had to cut out maybe a character at, at a runtime of probably, you know, two hours, an hour and 45, somewhere in that range. You could have gotten to a lot of this stuff and just cut out a bunch of stuff. But I also wouldn't say this was a fat movie uh, show like there. Yeah, there was stuff you could have trimmed if you would have had to. But uh, it worked so well as a show because of that space that you give it and uh, like getting to know. Uh, Linden, for instance, was yeah. a perk. That, I was just going to say that, right? <laughs> you wouldn't yeah. have gotten that in the movie, but uh, having Definitely. that moment and seeing how Linden fails, uh, yeah, uh, or or he's just in in that universe. Yeah, he's in that universe where he fails because in, in 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 one universe out of a billion, he he wouldn't fail. But wasn't this one? And, no, it wasn't this one. <laughs> and it was it was, but that was brilliant because you <laughs> it makes you. It was just done in such a wonderful way where one, it made you hope and think maybe this is the, the universe where he, he, you know, does succeed. Right. But then you see all the other, you see that this is not the universe, but then you also see all these other universes where the same thing happens and almost like it was destined to happen. 
right? If that's what mm-hmm. you believe, if that's what you tr- choose to believe. And in, in many cases, maybe more than not, it was destined. It did ha- happen, have to happen, but it, it just never gets shown the universe where he, he's safe. He saved. So it, just a really smart, thoughtful way to do that where when you're, when you, you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it and you're not interested in it, you probably don't like the, the show, Yeah, you know, and that show, and then the show isn't made for you and that's okay. And it's, it was very unapologetic in that regard, which I feel like a lot of great shows are that way. They're very unapologetic. I feel, you know, you might or might not agree with me, but the wire might be one, right? It's Mm -hmm. pretty slow to start. And if you don't, if you don't get it and you're not patient, then you just don't get it, but it's one of the best ever. So, uh, you know, I don't know. This feels like maybe one of those because of, you know, whenever you talk about cinematography, like there's so many slow shots and like slow drone footage and just like lagging time that, uh, um, you just got to kind of hang with it. Absolutely. And I love even the, uh, the synopsis, like that kind of yeah. kept me from watching the show for a while. I didn't even know cause this came so far out of the blue. I didn't know this was an Alex Garland product until at the end of the first episode, but the synopsis, a computer engineer investigates the secret of development division in her company, which she believes is behind the disappearance of her boyfriend. That's, that sounds so yeah. generic on its face, but it does. I love that you do that so that you can reveal that there's a bigger world inside. If you'll just trust the storyteller um, yeah. and they don't rush anything like you're saying, man, they really take their time to set up the world and to allow it uh, to unravel the way it needs to, instead of just let's throw a bunch of heart racing moments in there and uh, get people hooked in the first five minutes. Cause the first five minutes basically montage and Two people doing the worst thing that you can do in any project, which is waking up and starting their day. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's yeah. like a cardinal sin, um, <laughs> but it works because I don't know, Alex Garland and because Alex, Garland, yeah, Alex. That's, that's as good as I can get. When, yeah. One of the funny things is whenever I was watching the show the first time, that first opening, whenever we're seeing them waking up in bed, I was like, Oh, we're on we're on rails right now. We're on uh, tracks, and we're dollying. Oh, it's a slow move. Interesting. Okay. Well, actually, I, I wasn't thinking it was interesting. I was like, this feels like we're just moving just for the sake of moving. Um, and it wasn't until I don't know, maybe halfway in, maybe even that scene that we just played, where he starts talking about uh, determinism. I was like, oh no, this is all really well thought out. Actually, uh, that movement was very well, you know, articulated and on perfect on purpose, uh, was specific. And just to dive into that, I don't have a ton of notes, but it's the, a lot of that stuff, right? Slow, steady dolly moves, push-ins and slides, a lot of subtle and slow zooms. Some of them are almost imperceptible. Like you would, you literally have to be asking yourself and figuring out, is this a zoom or not? Uh, and I have this really bad habit that every time we're on a locked off shot, I check the, the corners of the, the screen to see if we're moving. Uh, yeah. Cause that's kind of the easiest way to tell if you're zooming in or pushing in or not sometimes on these really slow moves. Interesting. It's just to check the, uh, the corners of the screen to see if like the gap on between the chair and the edge of the screen, is that gap closing? That's I do that stuff like a thousand times. A, Dude, a I do. I do too. So, um, question there, uh, how often, how often do you find yourself checking where you're not moving a lot. very rarely right yeah. oh really yeah th- that happens oh, okay. a lot where i keep checking i'm like okay we're not moving maybe we're, maybe maybe we're moving now <laughs> and I, oh, I just keep going back because they'll a lot of directors will wait for that moment of okay now's the moment that we're going to get to the juicy part and then they'll start kind of creeping in so they might hold a shot for the patient ones like an alex garland might might hold for a minute and then slowly start pushing in. Like there's a scene in episode six when Lyndon goes to visit Stuart in his uh, RV. And that's exactly what they do. We were in the back of the, the, the cabin and we're watching them and we're kind of just panning around a little bit, which you don't get a ton of in this show. Uh, but we're panning around and then we kind of settle. And then as uh, Lyndon kind of gets to his to his big question, we start slowly creeping in. And it, it's not for long and it's not for very far, but but we do creep in and it's all for a purpose like this is deterministic camera language that you're on a steady and locked off track like a train or a tram that 
Forrest says in the in the clip, or and later in the uh, at the end of the film, I think we're 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 on rails, and this is all deterministic camera language to 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 echo that. As far as like the lighting, it's a lot of soft lighting. It's an anamorphic uh, aspect ratio. It's very wide and nice glittery things kind of happening in the background, and. I don't have a great reason for why he, he chooses those things. I think it's it feels sci-fi and it feels larger than life and it adds a lot of weight to the to the show. It's just a cinematic choice I think he's making. And Can you describe what, what that is again? Yes. Yeah, so As every time you describe it, I'm like Okay, I got it. And I'm like, <laughs> can you describe it again? So anamorphic is is usually a specific lens type. So the lens, if you think of a normal lens, it's a nice round thing. Well, imagine instead of a nice perfectly spherical lens, the it's it's a little bit more boxy. Like on the right and left side, it kind of bows around so that it compresses the image because you know it's a, mm. it's a convex lens or it's a lens that you know brings an image or light into the the lens and it squishes it the the left and right it squishes it down into the uh, uh, the chip or the the film whatever you're shooting on and then in post yeah. you de squeeze it like you stretch it back out into its proper aspect ratio so whereas you might be capturing in let's say a square for you know an easy vision imagine the the lens is actually capturing stuff that's a rectangle and it squeezes it down into a square and then whenever you get into post you you de-squeeze it back into a rectangle and that gotcha. adds all these interesting uh, effects that you know we both love like we love anamorphic lights in the background that kind yeah. of stretch and elongate instead of being this nice round thing it becomes this very tall light uh, lens flare that's hitting the camera and that's does that mostly affect like the borders and the like the outskirts or does it affect the whole image um like in the center too yeah the whole the whole image the and, whole image and it's uh it's interesting because if Anything that's in focus doesn't have any of, uh, many of these distortion effects, uh, if any at all. If you're de-squeezing right, you, sh you shouldn't have any issues with the thing that's in focus. But everything that's out of focus is what's going to take on all these interesting shapes and characteristics. Oh, okay. um, gotcha. It's a really gotcha. fun toy. I mean, I think that's why it's I, beautiful. I mean, uh, like the difference between it, like. Uh, yeah, I, I would challenge anybody that's that's watching this or listening to this to go go to on YouTube and look at you know the difference between an anamorphic um, uh, shot and a standard shot, uh, even in 4K. Like you can, it's it's totally different. It's you can see it, we've we've had these discussions where you and I, and and I with my wife, where it's like, you know, you watch a TV show, even a really good show. Or you watch um, anything that anybody has done, like, you know, your friends have made or that you've made or whatever. And there's there's still like this difference between uh, and I, I'm not saying that it's anamorphic lens lenses, but maybe in some ways it is. There's a difference between watching something that's a TV show or watching something that your friends make or something and watching a movie like a film. Right. And it's not always like I said, it's not always that it's anamorphic, but there's just something different. And I think that it's a combination of stuff like like anamorphic and like intention, possibly, right? You know, you spend a lot more time, a lot more money. Obviously, something's going to it's going to look different. It's going to feel different. And you have a lot more intention behind everything because you've had a lot more planning. But anamorphic is definitely one of those things that immediately brings out more cinematic feel for anything that you're that you're making totally sure. and i think yeah. what's cool about this kind of show is it's eight episodes and it's done i don't think there's ever going to be a sequel if there is it's going to be anthology he's going to go in a whole new story not the same universe at all is what i would anticipate yeah. but what's that's what's great about this and i'm hoping that we we have more people embracing this style of storytelling an eight episode tv show versus a 20 episode tv show massive difference in terms of how much planning you can put into it like if there's 20 episodes you're not going to have the same director you're probably not going to have the same director for all 20 episodes uh the writing is going to be a little bit more loose because 
by the time you're shooting one, you don't have the script for episode 20, let, al- let alone you probably don't even have it for episode eight or nine. But in this case, I'm sure Alex Garland was able to sit down, write all eight episodes and sit down with the cinematographer and say, hey, here's the themes that we're exploring. Here's where we end. Um, how can we shoot this efficiently and with all the intentionality that you're talking about? And we just need more of that because this is quality content. It's thought provoking and uh, it definitely makes you want more which is basically where everyone should stop <laughs> leave them wanting more yeah yeah um and i definitely did i i totally did and i hope i didn't ruin it for you by the way i so i finished it i watched oh, episode no eight. you know what's funny yeah go ahead and tell them and, oh so i watched episode eight and then i then i texted you deus deus and thank you i texted you deus and you were like, yeah, I can't wait for the next episode, for the final episode. <laughs> and and I was like, froze. wait, there's another one? How could there be another one? That's weird. And you were like, wait, what day is it? Oh, my gosh. I'll be right back. Well, so, so uh, yeah. in my defense, on the one hand, uh, IMDb had said it was coming out the following day. And so I was just trusting oh. IMDb to not screw it up. And they let me down. Fail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I well, I guess it's not really their fault. It was just determined always to be that way. Deterministic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the, the, it, I did thought, think it was really funny that I, that it didn't spoil it for me because I saw whenever you wrote that, I was like, Oh, he made a typo or he's making a joke. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was hoping. Yeah. I was like, Oh, he's, he's, he's being funny right now. Um, he's calling, uh, Alex Garland a God is what I thought you were making a joke. Uh-huh. And then I thought about, it, I was like, well, actually maybe it was a typo. And I just kind of went back and forth and then I was like, whatever, I'm going watching. That's it. why I didn't say anything <laughs> else. I didn't text you back. And I was like, I hope I didn't fuck this up for him. <laughs> well done. No, you played it perfectly, man. Well, thank okay. you for not like okay. overcorrecting. <laughs> no. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like, either he's really pissed right now or he has no idea either way. Nothing I say is going to help. <laughs> One of the early Good. shots. So I, earlier today I went back and watched uh, episode one and then the last three episodes just to kind of take a few notes and notice what I could. In the first episode, there was this really cool shot that I didn't notice any kind of recurring theme after the fact, or at least I didn't pick up on it. But there was this layered shot when they're in bedroom after their first day. And he's about, he just got, you know, the thumbs up to go into devs and he's talking to her about devs and they're making their pact that we're not going to discuss it. And you'll just uh, do it and we'll live our life like normal. Um, While they're sitting on their bed, we go into this kind of wide shot from their bedroom. We can see the living room in the back and there's a nice layered lighting that they're doing in this shot where them on the bed is like this kind of orange or yellowish tint and then right behind them is this completely unmotivated uh bright white lamp that i would have assumed they use that for motivation to light the them on the bed but they don't instead that lamp just kind of lights the wall and now there's this nice uh, white light on the wall. And then in the living room, there's like another color. And I, I forgot what the color was, but, uh, and I was just like, this is interesting. Cause I, I didn't catch where the motivation for their lighting on the bedroom, uh, on the bed is, but suddenly we just have all this depth on depth on depth, uh, looking from their bedroom into the living room. We have three layers of lights happening, even though I couldn't spot where their orange light is coming from. It was just beautiful. I was like, man, if nothing else, even if his writing wasn't brilliant, he he and Tom uh, Rob Hardy really know how to freaking make beautiful <laughs> images, man. It's, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, let's just jump into whatever we can kind of cobble together with the uh, with the story here. So obviously, at the core of this is determinism versus free will, um, right? And with the whole idea of determinism is they're kind of comparing us to robots in the sense that uh, we're programmed and we don't really have any deviation or any option to deviate if you believe in determinism. If you want to hear, this is kind of a fun conversation because this feels like he listened to our episode on Ex Machina. And uh, if you go back and listen to that, you'll hear a conversation. He probably did. uh, He probably did. (laughs) Of course he did. What else would you be doing? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> In that episode, what's funny is if you listen to that one, we have on Byron Reese, who runs a, uh, a bunch of stuff, but he has this great podcast of his own about artificial intelligence. And he and I kind of get into an argument about determinism, basically. And 
my my whole argument kind of came down to if you could, and this is why I believe in free will still, even despite the show, I I don't think that you could predict what I'm going to do tomorrow or today or say what next sentence is going to come out of my mouth if you knew all the data about me and you put that into a, a algorithm and you found a computer that could actually run it and calculate it all. I don't think you could predict it. And that's literally the conversation that we had. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, you're having, you're saying all this because of the show, but if you go back and listen to that episode, this is literally the conversation that we have. And to his benefit, Byron really didn't weigh in or against. He was just like, it's an interesting thought. <laughs> um, and he is far is smarter. He did- is he deterministic? I can't uh, remember that episode. Yeah, he, he he wouldn't say. I don't think he okay, had yeah. a horse in that race, but um, yeah. that's where I, I, I come down on free will. But the throughout this show, they're kind of going back and forth and making these interesting comments. Like in the first episode, there's this really fun little sequence where Lily and her coworker start playing a, a game of Fibonacci sequencing where her coworker kind of turns to her and says one and Lily looks back and she says one, two, three, five. And now, you know, if you don't know what Fibonacci sequence is, it's where you start with one and then you add the last two numbers in the sequence. So one, one becomes two, two plus one becomes three, three plus two becomes five, five plus three becomes eight. And so they run through the sequence until it gets into the thousands. I couldn't get it into the tens, <laughs> but, but after that, after Lily wins, what I love is she has this comment her coworker makes where she says, you have them memorized. She's like, no. And she says, you're a machine, Lily. And it's this great little subtle commentary about she's a machine. We're all machines. We're all robots. We're all programmed and we're all determined, predetermined. And that conversation definitely runs throughout the, the entire show. And I can't quite reconcile or fully uh, wrap my head around maybe that there is obviously this question between God and humankind that's running through even in the title, right? Devs is a joke for, for Deus and the, the, the building that they work in, for instance, the devs building, it's very temple like, right? It's highly ornamented and, uh, it's gold plated and it feels very much like a temple. And of course, uh, in this temple, it's very uh the the machine is god which i think is alex garland's own personal joke because normally a deus ex machina is a a writing ploy to get your characters out of a tough situation which he uses in this case but in this case he literally builds a god in the machine like normally it's just a turn of phrase uh that's taken from like Greek plays where they would have a machine that would save a character from whatever drowning by lifting them out of the water with this machine. There was really no explanation other than God is saving this person. And, and therefore God, the implementation of God was literally like a crane pulling them up out of the water. And therefore it would be, it became God from the machine or as we know it as deus ex machina. And in this case, he literally built a box, a computer, the machine, that they began to call their own God in the show itself. And so he built a deus ex machina, um, which of course also served the purpose of saving the characters in the very end. Right. Um, he put them in a simulation that, uh, ran just like reality. Um, the perfect, except unlike reality, uh, no one can unplug us. (laughs) They, they, they got to make sure the power stays on. There's no blackouts. Or At least as far as we know. Yeah, right, right, right. That, <laughs> and this is, Sorry. no, that's definitely where I differ uh, with like, no, Elon, I, I, Elon Musk thinks we could be in a simulation. Like he's thrown this oh, out right. before. I don't because to me, the idea of a simulation is the exact same concept of God. There is absolutely zero difference from our point of view in those two distinctions. And yeah. therefore... Because I don't, because I'm agnostic and I don't necessarily believe in God, I also don't believe in simulations. Like it requires the exact same leap of faith to believe that we're in a simulation as it does to believe we were created by God. Um, those are part and parcel. I don't see any distinction whatsoever in those two things. Yeah. Do you? Interesting. Do you want to weigh in on that? Do you have a, a feel? Okay. So let me let me just get this straight. Okay. So no simulation. 
because a simulation, but a simulation is deterministic. Um, I don't think a simulation has to be deterministic. I'm not deterministic. It doesn't. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I know you're not. That's why I'm like trying to reconcile. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I think you can be, you know, if you're in a simulation, then, yeah, I would say there's a lot more determinism that uh, you could, you know, sell me on. But I believe in neither. So I don't feel okay. at risk. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Okay. I mean, I, I listen, I, I don't believe in determinism myself and, and I don't think that we're necessarily in a simulation either. Uh, I mean, even if we are, I don't think it matters, but yeah, there, I, I do agree with you that I don't think that even if you had all the information from history throughout all of history and all the information about all of me and all of my cells and all of my atoms and all of my electrons and everything that you'd be able to tell what I am going to do, you know, in a, a minute from now or 10 seconds from now because, and, and I, I use the double slit experiment as the, as the reason for that, right? If you, if you're not looking, you have a wave pattern, right? You have a, a wave pattern, but the moment that you analyze anything, the moment that you look at it, the wave pattern collapses and there's only one of two places that, that those electrons are going to go. You have a two, sli- you have two, two lines instead of the multiple lines. So if you're not looking at it, it could be anywhere. But the moment you look at it, it is what it is. But so like you can't, it could have been a hundred different places. I could have done a hundred different things or a million different things. But the moment that you analyze it, I can only do maybe one or two things. And that's very limiting to you as a human or as, as a, a sentient being or as, as anything, as something that exists matter. So so because of that, I don't believe in it either. I, I agree with you, but I think that, and I also think that Alex Garland maybe agrees with you as well, hmm. you know, because if you look, you know, at the, the final episode where Lily, we see what Lily is supposed to do, shoot him. Right. And because of that, she dies. Right. Okay. Well, the, the reason why everything stops is not because she doesn't die. Like that still happens. It's because the way that she dies is different, right? And there's, you couldn't, no matter all the information they had, they had, that the machine had, the quantum machine had, and that it could see into the future and it could see into the past and everything, all of that information still could not tell why that happened. You know, it didn't happen because she shot him. It happened because she threw the gun down and, uh, what's his name, turned off the magnets, but it couldn't say that. And I think that that's the message that he's saying is that like, I think that determinism has its, its, its arguments for sure. And it's a fun experiment and it's a, it's a fun thought project. But at the same time, if you really dive deep and you think about it and look, who the hell am I? You know, like, I don't know anything, you know, I'm not Neil deGrasse Tyson or whomever, but it's very limiting it's, it's very, it's very limiting. Right. And it's, it's dangerous also, because if you actually do believe in that, then why do anything? Right. Why? Because it's already predestined anyway. If you're going to be a billionaire, you're going to be a billionaire. So eh, I'm just going to sleep in today instead of go do some, you know, go to that meeting or whatever, because I'm going to be a millionaire anyway. Eh, that's not how it works, you know? So it's, it's basically, it's like a get out of jail free card, but we don't get that in life. You got to you got to work. You got to do things. There is a cause and effect. Absolutely. And he even plays that card at the end in that final episode, right? He yeah. she's telling him like you've taken everything from me. He's like, "I don't mean to sound unsympathetic here, but I've taken nothing from you. I can't take mm-hmm. anything from you that you never had. This is all yeah. the illusion that you were a participant in your decisions and in your life, you know, are just that, you know, it's just, it's just an illusion. You were a marble that was pushed a long time ago and it's him completely hitting the escape key of responsibility. He's like, no, I'm not going to own any of that. I never had a choice. I was programmed to do it. It's interesting to me because they're framing them in as fanatics, right? They become these tech geniuses become fanatics and believe in their own, uh, Godhead and think they're messiahs, right? They've come to save everyone. What's interesting about that is because they're fanatics, they want to believe their ethos. Therefore, they never challenge it. 
Lily was the only one who stood up and challenged it. And that was what, you know, ultimately, you know, she kind of became the, uh, the Eve or the, uh, maybe even to some extent the Christ-like figure. Uh, but I thought of, you know, that that's a really interesting spin on what, you know, he's getting across because, and where I took the double slit experiment was in that moment that she made that choice and Stuart demagnetized the, uh, the rail or the, uh, the cart and dropped it and killed them both. It to me said that the machine was showing them both two different things. The machine never showed Stuart, I don't believe, that she shot him. The machine always showed him that he demagnetized it. That was always what he was going to do. And from his perspective, because it's all about, you know, the observed uh, outcome. And that's what changes based on what you perceive can, you know, go back and change history or whatever. Whereas she... Uh, and the reason they could never see past that point, obviously, and you know, the moment that she presents the uh, the, the whole scenario and at the table talk, which is a, an amazing episode where they just sit and talk. That's like my favorite episode of this whole series when is when Lily and uh, Jamie go over to Forrest's house and they sit down and talk like that's the most gripping to me of this entire series. And but and then the moment she says it, Katie says you're going to come and do come over to the devs building. And after that, nothing's going to happen. And to me, Katie is a bit of a play on Cassandra, which is a Greek priestess or goddess, if you will, who was known for her prophecies. She was known to make true prophecies, but she was cursed because the people that she told these prophecies to would never believe her. And so she had this, you know, really rough gift that I can tell you what's going to happen, but you're not going to believe me. And here we are, Katie and Lily are sitting and talking and Katie's telling her, you're going to come tomorrow night to uh, the devs building and you're going to do something that's going to break the system. And Lily's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and she's like, OK, here we go. And but the moment that happens, you know exactly what's going to happen. You know that Lily's going to watch the future and then she's going to contradict it and see what happens like that was that became plain on his face and so we're kind of waiting for that to happen for two episodes and then when it happens what you don't see coming is Stuart. Stuart just completely putting everything right back on the rails and that's such a great moment because i was still okay with everything happening uh and and it made me wonder like wow how's how's Forrest going to take this? How are they going to handle this? And then to, whenever you start to see the, the box tilting, you're like, oh my God, it's still happening. What the heck? And then you see, you know, Stuart doing his thing. And it's such a great reveal because you get proven right and wrong at the same time. And that's a really satisfying experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that stuff. I love, you know, feeling it's that. Brilliant. There's, there's also a lot of, I don't know how to, how else to put it. And I don't, think that I'm necessarily right, but it feels like there's a lot of druidic imagery. Like we're in the trees and the trees have all these halos and the music has all these chants and these woodwinds playing and uh, it's very eerie um, and it feels very druidic to me, but I don't know exactly how that would translate. I guess you could say that it's some maybe Christian at, on a certain level. I couldn't make that argument very strongly other than there's a lot of conversation about God going on. Um, yeah. but it feels idolatrous for sure. Yeah. I mean, the huge statue of his daughter. I mean, like, my God. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. We know what he was really worshiping, which was his daughter. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I don't really know exactly what to make of that. And of course, uh, the name itself, Forest, is trees and uh, Lily is a flower. And so you can feel a little bit of a contrast of nature that's happening between our two uh, leads as they're kind of coming into contact. Um, mm -hmm. Lily being something that lives out in an open field and a forest is something that kind of dominates and the overgrowth probably kills a lot of flowers in the lower vegetation. And so there's, you know, some interesting name play that's happening there. And I think Katie is a bit of a derivative of Cassandra and I, and mm -hmm. a little bit of a stretch, but it's, you know, phonetically a little bit in there. Yeah. I, so there's certain things I can't quite, you know, wrap my head around. Maybe if I actually sat down and watched it from, you know, start to finish again, I they would start to piece in there a little bit more. But the other thing that I, I wonder is if 
if after that moment that it becomes white, the reason that became white is it collapsed in the sense that they had been living in a multi-world universe that now collapsed into uh, one of those other paradigms that they reference. And so the model only worked while it was a multi-world universe. And maybe after those two things happened, Stuart versus uh, Lily's uh, choices, decisions, maybe after that it became, you know, it collapsed again into a single universe. And now their model, their predictive model, you know, no longer uh, had any utility. And therefore, you said something interesting earlier when you were talking about it showing different things to different people, the machine showing different things to different people. That actually is like really intriguing. Two people could be watching it and seeing completely different things. You know? Yeah. So that's really, in, I mean, that's. Yeah, I don't know where else to take that, but it's. I don't either. It's a fascinating yeah, I, idea that I think is lightly inserted into into the show. And Alex Garland is the, is the type that he's going to give you a really satisfying, you know, explanation or at least a, a, a experience. And then maybe and hold some cards to himself. That's for people like us that are like, man, there's more in there uh, if you dig around a little bit. But for well, those who yeah. don't. Sorry. Yeah, for those who don't want to, you know, dig any further, yeah, it's fine. But there's so much more in here. I feel like even the uh, the gold pillars kind of look like monoliths to me, um, which is kind of a 2001 reference. And monoliths being kind of these agents of change and growth. And even all the kind of cubic, I don't really know what to make of some of the iconography. Uh, I definitely felt the sunshine influence behind some of that stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I, and I can imagine that he called up Danny Boyle and said, hey, here's what I'm working on. Uh-huh. Tell me a little bit more about how you shot, you know, that and how you would do it differently. And there's if I had that connection, I was going to make the show 1000 percent. I spend, you know, two, three hours talking to Danny Boyle about that experience. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. I mean, about anything really. <laughs> so. So this is um, this is just really intriguing. Is is the ending where Lily sees where the machine shows Lily and you know shooting Forrest. Is that its own version of the double slit experiment? Because had it shown her what she actually did, right? Which was act like you're going to shoot him, throw the gun. It couldn't show that necessarily because then Forrest would know it, right? And wouldn't, would wouldn't changed, allow that. Right. Would have changed what he did. Yep. So he he would have changed what he what he did. It would have ended up the same way. So it showed her. It had to show her something. So it showed her what what is going to cause her to break the what it was showing. Right. Yeah. In order for the same outcome to happen. Right. Yeah. And I think. That, am I making sense when I'm saying this? Absolutely. Like. Okay. He, and the the funny thing about that is it also reveals that Forrest wanted to die. Like he. Yeah. Oh yeah. He was oh, yeah. looking, you know, to let all this happen for sure, so that he could be reunited with his daughter. Um, but it's funny because, in a in in a sense, it could have happened without her involvement. Yeah just by allowing all the science to catch up with them and then like kill yourself. Like there's no reason. Yeah. And so showing her what she needed to see and showing them what they needed to see, probably all the same thing as opposed to Stuart who is watching a completely different reel. <laughs> he was yeah. experiencing something else. And, totally. it was, and it was funny because the seed for why he changed was planted by Lyndon in that conversation that they had where Lyndon says uh, Forrest isn't a tech genius. Like he's insane and he's trying to resurrect his daughter and the Stuart really want him to have that kind of power. And of course at the end, whenever, you know, Katie asks him why he says, because I realized what we have done and someone has to stop this. Don't blame me, Katie. It was predetermined. Like what a salt in the wound. <laughs> Ouch. I love that. The other fun yeah. thing, just uh, while I'm glancing through my gibberish of notes, there's this really great shot uh, whenever they're going to Forrest's house. And there's this aerial shot where you see the, his neighborhood. And in the nighttime aerial view, 
it looks like a circuit board. It looks like a bunch of circuits kind of lined up. And I feel like that was intentional, if not enhanced. Uh, and it's lightly there. It's not, it's not like they literally have a, you know, electric circuit going through or anything. Um, but it's just all this imagery that they're kind of subtly inserting into the show that I bet there's a lot more in there. Uh, if you, if you, you know, pan through it and, and look for it. For sure. So Agreed. my, my, my question is what I couldn't quite figure out at the end, whenever they're in the simulation and he starts telling her we're in a multi mini world universe now. And, you know, be happy. We're in one of the good ones. We could have ended up in one of the one of the hells. And and to prepare us for that, I thought it might help if we retained all of our memories up until the point we died. And they kind of flash flash us sideways to see some of these other darker worlds for whatever. I don't quite understand that. I don't understand. I well. Okay, maybe it's because the machine itself is running a simulation of multi-worlds and he doesn't know which one he was going to. Okay, yeah. I guess I just had to say it out loud because in my head it was like a knot. No, yeah, yeah. It's confusing. Yeah. (laughs) It's confusing as hell. That's what makes it so good. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. It's actually something about many worlds. I just, it's, it's so cool. I wonder how many people listening actually believe in many worlds or even know what that is. Yeah, that's true. The the multiverse. Yeah. Hmm. It's and just for those of you who might not know, it's like this basically on the surface is just this this theory that th- that there is is a different universe for any and every decision or th- movement or thing that has ever happened and ever will happen. So instead of me shaking scratching my nose on my right side, there's a whole other universe where I scratch my nose on my left side. Um, or I did it backwards, or I didn't do it at all. And every time something is done or a electron moves from here to there, a whole other universe is going on where it, it happened in a different way. So there's infinite universes, essentially. And there's different there's different theories of like, does it, is it branches? Is a whole new universe branched off? Or are there already universes out there that fully exist from beginning to end separately? Like this is whole other thing. It is a rabbit hole. That's so much fun to go down. It really is so much fun to go down uh, and to sit here and brainstorm about it and to talk about it with you about, you know, like in relation to uh, a show like this is so much fun. So cool. So last few notes, there's this great shot of, uh, Forest as Sergey in episode one is being suffocated. There's this great uh, reverse angle on Forrest as he's got like this, he's framed with this huge halo on top of his head. Um, and that's just like this easy kind of godhood. That, yes. Yeah. And the other notes ish that I wanted to just talk about for a second. One, that car wreck was maybe the most brutal I've ever seen. It was totally agree. It was breathtaking. Like I, it's been a long time since I've seen a car wreck happen on screen and felt completely gassed by it. That was even though I knew it was coming. Hundred percent. Yeah. It was a thousand times more violent than I expected, and it just crushed it. And I love that it just leaves the frame, and you can you know hear the the carnage happening, and you and then we hold on Forrest, his reaction, and his complete you know, in comprehension of what just happened in his life. Beautiful. It's just really hard to surprise me with a car wreck anymore. Like I can I always feel them coming. They always do a great job of building that anticipation of there's a car wreck coming, but very, very rarely. Uh, it's probably since the forgotten, that was probably the last time I was surprised by a really good car scene, which was back in, I don't know, 2004. And on that same note, I just, completely loved uh amaya like Mm -hmm. she was just unbelievable to watch on screen like uh it's it's hard to get a natural and good performance out of a little kid you know sometimes whenever they're on camera uh you often have to kind of lead them by the hand and their performance gets very choppy and uh inconsistent um and you can feel the directing behind it of course they didn't have her really talk and so that helped a lot and it was just kind of observing her playing um but i could have literally just watched her 
play with jewelry in her room the for an hour <laughs> like she was so in, in enraptured by just making these beads and it very much reminded me of uh charlie i was like this feels like a charlie at two two years old and i was just yeah. like and the the cool note that came out of it uh was that amaya is that little girl's name and it's a an Amaya Sonoya or Mizuno, and she's the niece of the lead actor who I was super happy she got a chance to have her own her own show because I think she's been kind of waiting in their wings with Alex Garland. She's played bit parts here and there. She had a really great role in Ex Machina and she had a smaller role in Annihilation. And I was like, when is she going to have, you know, her breakout moment? And I just didn't think it was ever going to happen. Actually, I, it's really hard to to have a breakout role, but maybe it's a little. Are you easy. talking about Sonoya? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Interesting. And to see her, you know, have her own show now uh, was really cool and even cooler that she got to bring in her niece and uh, have her play such a huge role. And how amazingly creepy was that statue? <laughs> oh, yeah. I. It was almost, <laughs> it was like, it was really weird. You, you know, like you have, you have all this money to build all these like amazing, you know, this amazing structure and like all these billions of dollars for this computer and, and all this stuff. And then you build a statue like that. That's so creepy. Like you can't build a real, like a nicer looking, like, but it's supposed to be looming, right? It's yeah. very, you know, like she's looming over his life and always looking down on him and he can't get away from that. And I totally get, you know, when he fires Lyndon for breaking the whole deterministic uh, aspect of it, like it doesn't matter if this works, if it's not deterministic, it has to be because otherwise I could have done something to save her. You know, I could, it was, I could have changed this before it happened. If it's deterministic, there's nothing I can do. It is, it was, it was, it had to happen. And so that's, that's the only way that I could live on this planet knowing that there's nothing that I could have done. And it just, this is the universe, right? And even then you want to die because the universe is, is awful, yeah. right? <laughs> terrible place. Good. Anyway. Yeah. Good Lord. But yeah, I mean, that, I think that's basically all I got. And sorry if that was really all over the place. Like I, I just didn't have as much time. Well, I didn't make as much time as I normally do to, to kind of sift through everything. Um, no, no. I, I thought it was like, I thought it was awesome. I could talk to you about this kind of stuff all yeah. like, for hours. Uh, so... Yeah. Uh, what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, oh, shoot. I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to recommend? What are you going to recommend this week? Um, if you want to see Nick Offerman again, taking on, and by the way, just while we're talking about actors in this, Sonoya Mizuno, right? Uh, Nick Offerman, the person who played Lyndon is actually a girl. Uh, it's Kaylee Spaney. I don't know if we're pronouncing that name right. But that was actually a girl playing a boy's part. Um, I, f I, I was so, <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. That's I so knew cool. that. I knew that, dude. And I, I was, every time I saw Lyndon on screen, I was like, is that a, is that a girl or a guy? I guess it's a guy, but dang it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Cause wow. I kept waiting until someone made a reference, uh, some kind of gender reference or, or whatever, you know, if there, if there was going to be some gender neutral person character or whatever, I, I wasn't sure where they were going until they said, you know, someone said boy or something like that. Or maybe it was whenever they're watching the Marilyn Man uh, Monroe, uh, sex scene. I was like, oh, okay, he's probably a boy. Maybe that was, you know, me making an assumption, but I'm pretty sure they, they, uh, they called her a boy in the, in the show. And I was like, I love that he cast her. Uh, she was amazing and perfect. And, uh, once I had buy-in, I was pretty much good to go. I was like, Oh, it's just a younger kid. And, uh, who's, you know, a genius or, or whatever. Great casting, but like, well, I, yeah. Why would you do that? I don't know. Like I, what's the, I, I re, I'm interested to know, like, what's the, what's I, the, I, yeah. I think he just found an actor that he liked and he really wanted this act, this character to be a boy. And he was like, you know, can you play it? Cool. Let's, let's go. I love wow. that. I love that so much. Wow. That's crazy. Okay. So yeah, if you want to see Nick Offerman in another 
not as dramatic. I don't think there's going to be a lot of roles this dramatic, uh, but in a, in a drama, kind of a lighthearted drama, uh, Hearts Beat Loud is a really fun story about him and his daughter uh, and their musicians. He's a record store owner and they start a little band together. It's very... It's very light and it's also really, really good and endearing. Todd, you probably shouldn't watch it because they're musicians and you hate movies where people play music. <laughs> or act like they do. Or act like they do. I think in this yeah. case they probably do. I don't know. Nick Offerman plays the the drums or the guitar. I'm not even sure anymore. But yeah, I like him. I, I, that was the first time I saw him in a something that wasn't Parks and Rec, and I haven't really watched Parks and Rec, so I didn't have a hard yeah. time buying in for me. Um, yeah. But yeah, hearts beat loud. Wow. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, I know exactly what I'm going to recommend. Sorry, I would just forgotten it, uh, but I wanted to recommend this last week, and I just didn't, I didn't think of it. But I'm going to recommend, it's a Netflix show called Unorthodox. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's only a, a few episodes about, oh, it's a, based on a true story about a woman leaving the Hasidic Jewish community in, in uh, New York. And it's incredible. It's r- unbelievable. Like sat down and watched the whole thing, the whole season in one night Whoa. with my wife. Yeah. You haven't seen it? You haven't heard of it? No, I've been seeing, like you're the second person to, to recommend it to me actually. And so I'm definitely yeah. going to check it out now. Uh, it kind of kept popping up and I was like, man, the, it looks like a really well shot and it looks dramatic like I like. And I'm, yeah. it's not something, it's not th- something I would have been like, oh yeah, I'm going to watch that. It, it's my wife wanted to watch it and I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? And then after the first episode, we looked at each other like, we're going to keep going right now. <laughs> uh, and ended up watching the whole thing in one night. Damn. So really well done. Nice. Yeah. I think you'd like it a lot. I'm excited about that now. I'll probably watch the first episode before bed. Yeah, it's 11 awesome. p.m. by by the way, uh, listeners. We we like to do it late, and so cool. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week. Uh, we're going to do a few short episodes just to help us get a little bit of a backlog going. Because uh, yeah. if you haven't noticed, we've been really on the struggle bus since the uh, virus hit. It completely derailed all of our scheduling. Um, yeah, we had start, we had planned to do it, to do this beforehand, but yeah bombed us um so stay tuned next week we're gonna do cheers we'll mostly focus on the pilot and really for that kind of show the pilot is very uh representative of the entire show so uh we'll kind of take a take a look at cheers pilot you can watch that on netflix right now um so check that out and don't forget to subscribe and review us on itunes leave us a note if you'd like us to talk about a movie or a type of subject that you want us to analyze on whatever and i also want to give a shout out to charlie for the review man he left us such a great review i'll read a small piece of it he said i've been looking for her quality film podcast for the past two years and happened to stumble upon the pestle to prime myself for a reshowing of 70 millimeter interstellar imax dude man you won my heart right there my man (laughs) and i was blown away by wes and todd's analysis bringing new insights and perspectives into a film i've seen 15 plus times and he goes on to say some other really really great things about us dude thank you so much for your review that actually helps a lot we've gotten another one since then um i think just a rating not an actual brilliant write-up you're you're an a plus writer my friend you said all the right words (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, thank you friend and also a uh, big shout out to Izzy for checking in. I, I hit him up uh, a few weeks into the lockout lockdowns and seeing how he was doing. He's good. He's in D.C. And uh, he said he's been doing the same thing we, we're doing with trying to figure out how to rehearse with his band uh, over, oh, over Zoom and Skype and whatnot. So props, bro. That's that's dedication to the cause. I like it. Yeah. And so, Good on you, man. yeah. And so, uh, if you want to drop us a note on this episode, you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash devs. Uh, And we'll leave you with a quote of the day from H.G. Wells. History is a race between education and catastrophe. That could not be a better quote for, I mean, this show, but for right now, just period. I mean, we should, we better learn from this. God, I hope so. It's definitely 100% going to happen again. It's not like all the diseases are done with. This is it. Like... We better learn from it. Uh, yeah, it's only wow. a matter of time. Um, yeah. And 
and in that same vein, like whether we're talking about technology, um, medicine, just the advancement of our our world in a variety of ways, uh, it's a really fine line with how how we choose to use a thing and 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 learning from our mistakes in the past, you know, it, it would have been super easy during the Cold War for the entire world to have, you know, gone up in smoke. But we learned, hopefully, that there's a, such a thing as mutually assured destruction that, you know, I'm not going to kill you because that would just mean that I die. And similarly, like we're getting into new areas with technology that could easily turn bad. Like this virus, uh, I have seen and heard no reasonable evidence that it was lab created, but there's no reason that some other virus couldn't be lab created or honed or modified or, uh, I mean, it's hard. It's really, really hard, but scientists like challenges. And so hopefully what we learn from, you know, the coronavirus outbreak, COVID-19 is, uh, don't mess with it. Like learn what we can from it and keep things as safe as possible in the lab and Hopefully, uh, you know, we were better off for it. And this could have been so much worse in terms of outbreaks and viruses. This could have been so much worse, you know, when you start thinking about Ebola and viruses that are that are much more destructive. Imagine combining the uh, the effect of Ebola with the contagion of oh something, God. Like, you know, this. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, anyway. Yeah. So. Interesting. H.G. Wells, I, I was struggling. That was a last-minute poll. <laughs> I like It's amazing. In, incredible quote. Well done. Thanks. Wow. Well, this was a blast. Thanks for the, uh, for the idea. Man, fantastic. It's, uh, episode number two, quarantine version. Uh, I'm, I don't mind it. It's Same. not so bad. Yeah, we're figuring it out. Well, until next week, guys, please stay safe out there. Stay home and uh, enjoy your family and enjoy Zoom meetings and all that stuff and, and just take care of yourselves. And join us next week. We'll be doing Cheers, focusing on the pilot. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Movies.